Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Colossians 1. When I was about 9 or 10 years old, I got saved. And I'm not using air quotes because I'm like making fun of that experience or because I don't think it's legitimate. I'm, I'm using air quotes because the more time that passes, the more I'm not quite sure that that's what happened to me. I was at a baseball camp in my hometown put on by a local church. And at the end of the camp, they had their pastor come and give a talk, you know, like the talk, like Jesus, the Bible, the whole deal. And ironically, I I don't remember a lot about the content of that talk. I don't remember the specifics of what he said really at all. What I do remember was the illustration that he used at the end of his talk. He asked if he could borrow one of the kid's baseball gloves who was at the camp. He took the glove, he walked about 10 yards away, and he put the glove on the ground, just laid it there on the infield. And then he walked back away and he got a baseball and he, he rolled the baseball towards the glove. The ball hit the glove and bounced away. And he said, that's what your life is like without Jesus. And then he asked the kid to come and put on the glove, put the glove on his hand. And then he, he did the illustration again and he rolled the ball towards the glove and the kid scooped it up and threw it back. And he said, that's what your life is like with Jesus. Looking back on it, I always wonder what would have happened if the kid wouldn't have caught it. <laughs> like, that's a pretty high stakes ground ball, right? Like, I, so I don't know what happened. I don't know if they like, if he was a plant, if the kid was a plant and they had practiced it a lot of times beforehand and they like had a plan for like an alternate message if, you know, he wouldn't have caught the ball. I digress about all of that, but it was just interesting to me that he put so much confidence in this nine-year-old kid at the baseball camp. But he said... This is what your life is like with Jesus. And so then he gave an invitation, so to speak, or as much of an invitation as you can give while kids are sitting in the infield of a baseball field. And and he said, essentially, if you want to be like the second type of glove and you want to get to go to heaven with your family and see your parents and your grandparents after you die, you should come forward and you should accept Jesus so that can happen. And I'm thinking to myself as a nine-year-old at the time, well, I don't want to be a useless baseball glove. Doesn't sound like a promising future for me, especially given I'm like interested in this whole baseball thing. And I want to see my family my parents and my grandparents after I die. So I, I guess that means I need to accept Jesus, right? Like even a nine-year-old can do that math, you know? And so I went forward. I did what he called accepting Jesus. The next Sunday, I walked the aisle at my church, and my pastor led me through a prayer and then signed me up to be baptized. It was a big deal. After the service, I stood in front of the church and everybody came by and told me how big of a decision that was and how proud they were of me, how this was gonna be a life-changing scenario for me. 
And then the next week, I remember asking an older kid in my youth group a question. He had gotten baptized earlier that year. So in my mind, that made him an expert, right? He had been doing this thing for at least a few months. And I said to him, I said, okay, uh, so I'm getting baptized. What do I do then? What do I do now? What, What is this whole being a Christian thing exactly? Like, how do I live? What do I do? His response to me, I'll never forget it, was, dude, you don't have to do anything. You're good. Don't worry about how you live. You're saved now. And to make a long story short, essentially, I took his advice. I spent the next 10 or so years of my life not worrying much at all about how I lived and certainly making no effort to live like I thought a Christian would. After all, why would I do that? I was already saved. The transaction had already taken place. And because of that, my life was full of one bad habit after another, one addiction after another, one destructive relationship after another. I lived my life profoundly unconcerned with the way that I lived, and it showed. But the irony is that pretty much that whole time, that whole part of my life, if you would have met me, I would have told you and told myself with 100% confidence that I was saved. In fact, I wouldn't let anybody tell me any different. If they tried to talk to me about Jesus, I would say, no, I'm good. I don't need that. I'm all set. I've already had that experience. And it wasn't until halfway through college that I figured out following Jesus was a little bit more and a lot more beautiful than that. And I tell you that story so that you can get to know me a little bit, but but also, more importantly, to, to illustrate that it matters how we think and how we talk about the gospel. It it matters how we think and talk about what it means to be saved. Those things matter deeply. The, The way that we communicate those things to others shapes the trajectory of people's lives for the better and for the worse. So when we talk about these ideas, what the gospel is and what it means to be saved exactly, we're not just talking about theological concepts. We are talking about people's lives and the trajectory of people's lives. It all matters profoundly. This morning, we wrap up our six-week series all about mission. We've been talking about how we demonstrate and articulate the gospel to those who don't yet know it or those who haven't yet understood it. And we have covered a lot of ground so far. If you haven't been here for the whole series, would highly recommend going back to the website, the podcast, catching up on everything that we've covered so far. But we've talked about a lot. We've talked about overcoming some of our internal angst and anxiety that we feel about living on mission. We've talked about how we are where we are for a reason, how God wants us to see the people around us with purpose and intentionality. We've talked about how to ask good questions as a way of understanding other people and where they're coming from and what their worldviews are. And last week, we talked about living a distinctive, countercultural type of life in a way that invites questions from others that don't follow Jesus. But today, we arrive at the question of all questions. Assuming that we're regularly participating in everything that I just said and assuming that all of that does lead to opportunities to share the gospel with other people, how do we actually do that? 
How do we talk to people about Jesus exactly? How do we articulate the good news of Jesus and what it means to accept that good news? Well, it seems appropriate to me to start by making sure we're all clear on what the good news is. If we don't grasp what the good news is, we're obviously going to struggle mightily to articulate it to others. So for that, I want us to take a look at our passage. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read it once again all the way through verse 23, and then we'll talk through it some. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel. What is? Everything he just said, right? This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, so there's obviously a lot in there that we could unpack, a whole lot of different ideas, a whole lot of different content. And in just a few moments, I want to give you what I think is a framework, some big categories to put everything from that passage into to help make sense of it all. But before we get there, I I do just want us to zoom out for a moment and look at this passage as sort of a complete unit all at once. Notice that in this passage, Paul, the the author, for him, the gospel is an announcement about something God has done and is doing in the world as a whole. How through Jesus, God is, quote, reconciling all things to himself, not just all people, but all things to himself. Another way of putting that is that God is returning things in the world to how he intended them to be in the beginning. And he is doing that evidently through the blood of his son Jesus shed on the cross. And it's only once he's said all of that in this passage that he zooms in and specifically talks about what God has done for us, for human beings. After he tells us about God's plan to reconcile all things to himself, he then pivots to say, once you, human beings, people of God, once you were alienated from God because of your sin, but God has also reconciled you to himself through the cross. Now, he could have just mentioned the second part, right? 
He, he could have just said that the gospel is about God forgiving people of their sins on the cross or that the gospel is the way that people get to go to heaven when they die. In fact, most gospel presentations I have heard in my lifetime do just focus on that part. But he didn't just say that. He said much more than that. So why? Here, I think, is the answer. The gospel isn't a story about us. It's not a story about us. It's not a step-by-step process by which we can be saved. The gospel is a story about God and what God is doing in the world as a whole, what he has done, what he is doing, and ultimately what he will one day complete. We, you and I, are a key part of that plan, of that process, but it's not primarily about us. It's about God and the entire cosmos. And if we try to make the gospel a story primarily about us, here's what happens. The gospel becomes little more than a means to our end. A means for us to acquire favor or acceptance or even just right relationship with God. All of a sudden, the gospel message becomes a means by which we get something that we need. And while the gospel is not less than that, it is certainly far more. The gospel isn't first a means to our end. It's a means to God's end. And God's end is to reconcile all things to himself, according to this passage. His end is to restore everything that is broken under heaven, to restore the world we live in right now to what he intended it to be all along. And as part of that plan, he is saving individuals like you and me out of our sin, into his grace, into his freedom but he does that so that we can participate with him in the reconciliation of all things. Is that all making sense so far? I know this is theoretical, but we're going somewhere with it. Which means that when we talk to someone about what it means to, quote, believe the gospel, what it means to be saved, we need to make sure that we're taking all of that into account. To be saved, in other words, is not the end goal, it's the beginning. It's not a spiritual transaction where we complete the minimum entry requirements into heaven. It's how God brings us into his plans to reconcile all things. Another place in the scriptures that I think you can see this quite clearly is in Mark chapter 10. There's a story there that we actually referenced a couple weeks ago about the so-called rich young ruler. In short, a rich man comes up to Jesus and asks the minimum entrance requirement question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the conversation that ensues after that question between him and Jesus, I think, is fascinating to read. It might be my favorite story in all of the Gospels. So if you have time this week, I would recommend going and reading it. We'll put the passage that it comes from in the sermon notes if you want to look there. But I would encourage reading it on your own just so you can see how Jesus navigates this type of conversation with someone. But if you do that, if you read through the story and you pay attention, you'll see that in this passage about the rich young ruler, Jesus and the disciples seem to use four different terms almost interchangeably in that passage. The four terms are these, eternal life, 
following Jesus, entering the kingdom of God, and being saved. Those four terms in this passage almost seem like they're being used as if they refer to the same thing, or at the very least, like they are necessary implications of each other. In other words, to inherit eternal life is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to enter the kingdom of God. And to enter the kingdom of God is to be saved. They all correspond to one another. They refer to one another, which means that to be saved in the Bible's language is about way more than having your card punched for heaven when you die. It is to experience and participate in God's kingdom in every arena of life, both here and in the future. It is to follow Jesus. It's to bring every aspect of your life under the rule and the reign of Jesus the King, and it is to receive eternal life. But that eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts now. John 17 puts it this way. I think this is really, really clear the way Jesus puts it. Now, this is eternal life. Here's what it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. If you want eternal life, get to know God. Get to know life in his kingdom, starting in the here and now and then continuing into the life to come. To be just a little more blunt about it, if you are not interested in knowing God now, you are not going to be interested in spending eternity with him. If you're not enjoying following Jesus now, what makes you think that you're going to enjoy it all of a sudden once you die? If you have no interest in living your life in the kingdom of God now, you will not be interested in it then either. Our friend Dallas Willard was known for saying somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I love this. He said, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. This is what being saved means. It means bringing your life and your activity and your thinking and your feeling and your believing all under God's rule and God's reign now. More and more so, in fact, with every day that goes by as a follower of Jesus and then fully and completely on the day that Jesus makes all things new. That is what it means to be saved. Now hear me. Doing that is not what merits God saving you, but it is what God saving you means. There is a reason that when Jesus left his disciples, their final instructions on earth, he did not just say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, period. If being saved is just a one-time spiritual transaction, that's all he would need to say there, right? But for those of you that know the passage I'm referencing, what did he say? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and what? Teaching them. In fact, he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything is a lot of things. It's going to take a little while, right? What matters isn't just that people sign at the dotted line for their salvation, It matters that they learn how to bring the entirety of their life under the good and loving reign of Jesus the King. 
the biblical authors often talk about salvation in three different tenses, actually. They use past tense, present tense, and future tense. When you decide to follow Jesus, you are saved, past tense, from the power of sin. So when you become a Christian, sin is no longer your authority, it is no longer your master, because Jesus has liberated you from all of that by his life, death, and resurrection. But also, you are being saved, present tense, from the presence of sin. With each day that goes by, you are learning more and more as a follower of Jesus how to live in freedom from your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the, the biblical authors also say you will be saved, future tense, from the, even the effects of sin when God makes all things new, when he fully reconciles everything to himself. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That is what salvation means in the Bible, past present, future. Not a one-time transaction, but a life trajectory towards God. So with all of that unpacked, let's circle back to our original question. How do we articulate all of this to people in our life? How do we articulate what the good news is and what it means to be saved to people in our life that need to hear that message? Right off the bat, we need to acknowledge something with this question, and that's that in the Bible, there doesn't appear to be any one correct way to present the gospel to others. For instance, in the book of Acts, if you just read through the book beginning to end, the early leaders of the church present the gospel in a myriad of different ways. They emphasize different parts of it depending on the setting, the context, the audience, who they're talking to. To be sure, there are some common elements in most of the presentations that they give about the gospel, but the details vary a good bit. The length of the presentation varies a good bit. This is also the case in many of Paul's letters. If you read most of the letters in the New Testament written by Paul, you'll find that he always talks about the gospel in some way, shape, or form, but the way he presents the gospel is usually very specific and very contextualized to whoever he happens to be talking to and whatever issues they happen to be facing at the time. We don't ever get, at least best I can tell, a one-size-fits-all answer for how we articulate the gospel to others. So today, I just want to give you what I think is a helpful framework for how to do it. And this framework is not my own invention, not at all. It's actually just the story of the Bible and of the gospel itself. But I do think this can serve as a really helpful guide for how we articulate the gospel to others in our life, our, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, our family members. So I'll give it to you as a whole, give you the whole framework all at once, and then we'll break it down a little bit and see how it guides and informs these conversations. Framework is this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This, I think, is a helpful framework for communicating the gospel to other people. So let's take each one of those pieces in turn and talk a little bit about what they mean. Creation we could summarize like this. There is a way that the world is supposed to be. There is a way that the world is supposed to be. In the Christian's worldview, God is the creator and he designed the world with purpose 
and with intention and intentional design. There is a way that the world is supposed to be. Fall is the idea that something has gone wrong with us and therefore with the world. Fall is the idea that something has gone wrong with us, with humanity, and therefore with the world as well. So it's the belief that something has broken about how the world was supposed to function in the beginning. Things are not now the way that they were supposed to be. And more personally, we, you and I as human beings, we aren't the way that we are supposed to be. For followers of Jesus, we call the thing at the core of that problem sin, which simply means to miss the mark, to miss the mark of who and how God made us to be in the world. That's fall. Redemption is the belief that we need something to be done about what is wrong. We need something to be done about what is wrong. Something has to, in the Bible's language, save us. The world cannot go on as it is. Something has to change. As Christians, we believe that that something is the man Jesus, God in the flesh, that by entering into the world as a human being and by sending that human being to the cross and bringing him back to life, God has plotted a new trajectory forward that is possible for all who believe in him. That through Jesus, we can have our sin addressed. We can be reconciled to God and therefore be reconciled to who we were meant to be and how we were meant to live all along. Redemption has arrived in and through Jesus. And then lastly, restoration. Restoration is the understanding that the world is returning to what it was meant to be. The world is returning to what it was meant to be. Everything that was lost can be recovered, and everything that has gone wrong can be set right. For those who belong to Jesus, that is happening right now as God is reconciling all things to himself, and it will happen completely on the day that Jesus returns. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, like I said, one of the reasons that I think that framework is helpful is because it's literally the story of the Bible. Most theologians from all different perspectives agree that this is the storyline that the scriptures follow as a whole, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. If you were to go back and even read passages like Colossians 1 that we read earlier, you would find that it touches on all four of these movements in the biblical story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But there's also a very practical reason that I think this framework is helpful for how we talk to people about the gospel, how we speak to people about Jesus. The reason I think it's practically helpful is because most people, whether they realize it or not, already use a version of this framework to make sense of their world. We as human beings just inherently understand our lives through these lenses. We don't know how not to do that. We can't function in the world without thinking about our lives this way. So uh, you guys know I hate using political examples, but it's just a really quick way to see this. 
So for sake of illustration, uh, the Republican Party believes a version of this story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, America was meant to be the greatest nation that ever existed. Fall, we are no longer the greatest nation because of some combination of factors that may or may not include the Democratic Party just existing. Redemption, we've been given candidates, or primarily right now, just one candidate uh, who can return us to greatness and restoration. Under that great leadership, we can return to greatness once again. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The Democratic Party, just to be an equal opportunity offender, uh, the Democratic Party believes a version of this story as well. Creation. We were meant to be a beacon of education, progress, and enlightenment to the world. Fall, we currently are a bit backwards in that. We're regressing rather than progressing for a multitude of reasons that may or may not include the very existence of the Republican Party. Redemption, we can elect forward-thinking leaders who can legislate us past America's more outdated ways. And restoration, we can finally become that beacon of progress and enlightenment that we should be for the world. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, I'll even put it this way. If you just watch any TV show, any movie, if you read any book. Now, some of them don't fit this framework because they're like really indie movies and shows and they just end with like fall and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> but, but at least most movies, most movies that we are drawn to and really enjoy the plot line of, if you watch them, you will actually find a version of this storyline in them. Creation, there's something that's supposed to be a certain way. Fall, something has gone wrong. This is what we call conflict as we think through a narrative story. Redemption, something happens. There's a moment where something happens to change the trajectory of the story and then restoration. This is usually the morning scene, right, at the end of the movie where the sun comes up and everything is slowly getting pieced back together to what it's supposed to be. If you watch any popular storylines, you will find that they roughly function on this framework. This is just how we interpret our world as human beings. I would argue that's because we were made in the image of God. We have this storyline written in our hearts, whether we love God or whether we want nothing to do with him. We want a version of this story to be true because God made us with purpose and intentionality. But more importantly, for this series and how we communicate the gospel to people around us, you need to know that the individual people in your life who don't know Jesus, they also see their world in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So maybe they live out of a narrative like the ones of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. Maybe they've chosen that narrative to kind of define their life at a personal level. Or maybe they have their own unique version of this storyline that they operate out of. But most everyone we know lives into and out of their version of this story. They believe that life was meant to be a certain way. They believe that something has gone wrong with that plan. They believe that something has happened or needs to happen to rescue them out of that. And they believe that there is a better world on the horizon because of that. For instance, uh, your classmate at school who is on three different dating apps right now, thinking that on one of them, she is going to find a guy who wants something more than a hookup from her. She is believing some version of this story. 
your coworker who is climbing the corporate ladder and is willing to take anybody out that they need to in order to get there. They are believing some version of this story. Your family member who is entrenched in internet conspiracy theories right now, they are living out some version of this story. Your neighbor who comes home from work every day, closes his garage door behind him, and turns on Sports Center until he falls asleep. He is living out some version of this story. You see, not everybody believes the gospel, but everybody believes a gospel. All of us operate out of a narrative script with its own versions of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We don't know how to function in the world as human beings without a framework like that. Which means, and this is where it becomes really important for us if we want to have conversations with those people about Jesus, which means learning to articulate the gospel is all about connecting the stories that people already believe to the one true story of the gospel. Helping people see how God's story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration is the only big story that their story makes sense inside of. When we articulate the gospel to people in our lives, that is what we're doing. We're helping them connect the story of their life to God's bigger story, to his commitment to reconcile all things to himself. So what I want to do just for the last few minutes is I want to grab one of the examples that I just mentioned, and I want to try to show you how this might work in practice. I'm hoping this will help. So for the classmate that I mentioned who is on all the dating apps, her functional framework right now, the way that she interprets the story of her life, might sound something like this at a functional level. Creation. I was made to enjoy intimacy with another person. Fall. I haven't found that person yet, so I can't be a whole person the way that I was meant to be. I'm lonely. Redemption. There are ways out there to accelerate the pace at which I find that person who can make sense of my life. And then restoration, I will find that person and we will live happily ever after and they will meet all of my needs. That's the narrative script that she is functionally operating out of. She may not use those exact words, but if you get to know her enough and you ask enough good questions, you can start to piece together that that is the way she sees her life. But if she's your classmate and you've built that relationship with her, what would it look like for you to help her connect and maybe even eventually replace her story with God's story? Her gospel with the true gospel. I think it might look something like this. Creation. Your classmate is right in thinking that God did not design her to be alone. That's Genesis 2, right? It is not good for man to be alone. Now, that passage is talking about way more than romantic relationships, but it's true that it's not part of God's design for people to be lonely. Creation. Fall, she is feeling the frustration of loneliness on a deeper soul level for at least two reasons. One, because all these guys that she's met so far on the apps only want one type of intimacy without any of the other types. They want to use her more than they want to love her and accept her as a human being. But also, she is probably feeling this loneliness on a deeper level because she has believed that romance is the only type of relationship that can resolve her loneliness. 
She believes that that's the only one that can work. Redemption, here is where you start to get to deliver some good news to your classmate. The good news is that in and through Jesus, her loneliness has been directly addressed. One, God has accepted her fully and approves of her completely at the cross. He has told her not only that she is beautiful and desirable, but that she is holy, blameless, and cherished in the sight of God, just like we read in Colossians chapter 1. That is true of her because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus makes her a daughter of the King. Restoration. Jesus is restoring her through his death and resurrection. If she would have him to who she was made to be all along, he's helping her realize who she truly is at her core. And through that, he's giving her the ability to realize that she doesn't need a boyfriend or a husband to be a whole and complete person. He's helping her to see that there are other ways to resolve some of that loneliness, intimacy with the Holy Spirit, other followers of Jesus that can love her and know her more deeply than that romantic relationship at a surface level can. God has provided ways for her to not have to experience loneliness. And maybe one day God provides a guy to come along and be one more aspect of that for her. Maybe. And if he does, this all means that she will likely be in a healthier place for all that to happen. She won't need him to be everything to her because she already has some of the help she needs and not feeling lonely. But even if that doesn't happen, even if God does not provide that guy down the road, she will be okay because she no longer needs that one thing to cure her loneliness. And further, she can now become the type of friend to others that she herself needed in that season. She can participate with God, not just in her own reconciliation and restoration, but in that of other people too. God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is reconciling all things to himself, and that includes her. So do you see what we did there? I know that was a lot but all we did was attempt to take her story, her own functional understanding of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and connect those things to God's bigger story. We helped replace her gospel with the gospel. That is how you articulate the good news of Jesus. Now, real quickly on this, let me give you a caveat. Nine times out of ten, this is so important to realize because I think it's something we get really stressed out about. Nine times out of 10, you are not going to be able to walk her through all of that in one conversation, nor should you. <laughs> I've been in that moment before where somebody asks a question that I feel like indicates a hunger for the gospel, and then I give them like the 20-minute gospel presentation, and I go, so like, do you have thoughts on that? And they're like, yeah, I mean, I got to go. I had to go 10 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> It, it can be overwhelming if you try to walk them through all of that in one sitting, right? Sometimes it happens. Occasionally you'll get that opportunity, but usually what happens is that through multiple conversations over the case, over the course of, of weeks or months or even years, you get to help her connect those dots. You get to help her see how her story connects to God's bigger story, and you get to help her see how God's bigger story makes sense of her story in a way that is far more helpful than anything she's believing in currently. 
So you usually don't get to present it all at once, but that's how you do it. You meet her where she is in her own attempt to craft a creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, and you show her that there is a better one out there. And as you help her see that, you get to invite her to live into it. Now, some of that's going to happen through your words. Some of that is going to happen through you asking enough good questions that she begins to see some of the holes in her worldview. Some of that is going to happen by her observing your life, how you live into and out of a better story than hers. And often it's going to happen by you inviting her to come around and see how a community of Jesus followers live this out. But it all culminates in you being able to articulate to her over time a better story, a better creation, fall, redemption, restoration than what she's got. So our practice for this week in the practice guide, if you've got one or if you've pulled it up online or whatever the case may be, the practice for this week, final practice of this series, is basically just what I just did. We give you several different what we call gospel simulations, which sounds really fancy. It's really just different scenarios, different imaginary people. We tell you a little bit about their story in the practice guide, and then we give you some space to figure out how you would connect their story to God's story, how you would articulate God's story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration to them based on where they're at, the season of life they're at, what their story functionally is currently. So we'll work through that together, but with all of this, we'll need God's help. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, thank you that you have sent Jesus for us that we could not do for ourselves. And God, we thank you that that story means we get to spend an eternity with you, but God, also thank you that that eternity starts now. That what you've done for us is even more than giving us a pass to heaven. That what you've done for us includes salvation in the truest sense. Thank you that you have saved us from the power and the authority of our sin. God, thank you that you are currently saving us from the presence of our sin. And God, thank you that one day you will save us and your world fully from even the effects of sin, that you'll lead us into a world where there are no more tears, there's no more pain. There's no more grief. God, thank you that you are reconciling all things to yourself and that those all things include us. God, people who have so often rejected you and who you are have turned away from you and your design for life. God, as the scriptures say, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way, our own understanding of the world, our own preferences, and our own way of thinking. 
But God, you tell us in the scriptures that you have laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And by sending your son to the cross, you have opened up a new reality within the present one. You've given us the ability to walk away from our sin, away from our rejection of you, and into hope and peace and life and joy and into being who you designed us to be all along. And God, thank you that through that, you have drawn us into the reconciliation of all things, that you have not just reconciled us, you have made us reconcilers, carrying the message of reconciliation wherever we go, in every conversation that we have, in every interaction that we have with people in our life. So God, what we ask is that you would empower us by your spirit, that you would give us the boldness and the courage and the audacity to walk into what you have for us, which includes delivering the gospel message of reconciliation to a world around us that so desperately needs to hear it. So God, would you help us to do that well? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? Would you give us Holy Spirit guidance? Would you help us to know when to speak and when to be silent, when to ask questions and when to give answers? God, we need your help for all of that. And so God, would you help us to depend on you and who you are, the wisdom you offer, the guidance you give. God, we ask for your help. As we, as we bring the entirety of our lives under your rule and your reign and as we invite other people to do the same. We ask all this in your name.